Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Matt Ardill welcoming you back to the Comedy Album Book Club. Last month, we had a great conversation about Lenny Bruce's The Carnegie Hall Concert with comedian Andrew Lazar. Unfortunately, one of our guests was not able to join us and had to reschedule. It turned out to be a gift because that gave me the opportunity to talk about the seminal piece of comedy history, not once, but twice with two awesome people. I sat down with writer, comedian, educator, and activist Lara Ray to discuss the album as well as their first-hand experiences talking to people from Lenny's life. So sit back and enjoy this second deep dive into Lenny Bruce's The Carnegie Hall Concert, this time with Lara Ray on the Comedy Album Book Club. Welcome to the Comedy Album Book Club. Today I'm joined by Lara Ray, playwright, Canadian Comedy Award nominated comic, Gemini nominated television writer, and CBC debaters contributor and creative director for the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. And then I, I would also, yeah, and uh, just a comedy of a fashionado, you know, somebody who has really uh, loved and craved this uh, and, and just uh, immersed myself in this art form long before I, I, you know, I became a comic. It was just, it was an art form that um, I just, I, I embraced uh, fully. And, um, you know, it's amazing that we're talking today about somebody who is, um, you know, uh, in, incredible, you know, more, more studied, you know, as they say in books, you know, more, more studied than read, you know, and I would say that Lenny Bruce is kind of more, more remembered than heard, you know, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, we can dig deeper into this as we talk about the idea of a comics responsibilities and also, you know, what or what, uh, not other people should say about comedy. We're living in a time uh, very close to Lenny's, you know, where uh, people are uh, really interested in what comics are saying uh, outside of the venues. In other words, people who haven't attended a show, listen to a record, watch a special and so on, feel that there are limits um, to what should be said and can be said and in what context it should be said. And Lenny Bruce, uh, if he's nothing else, is has become an almost messianic figure in this discussion, whether or not he wanted to be or not, which we can also uh, discuss my views on. Um, but you guys um, today are talking about an album called uh, Lenny Bruce at Carnegie Hall. 
Yes. Uh, you know, I recorded in 1961. This is an interesting way to to experience Lanny because it is a um, an off the floor live recording. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, you learn very quickly when you're exposed to Lenny Bruce is a lot of the uh, Lenny Bruce material was released on a on a rather unsavory uh, label called Fantasy Records, uh, who recorded uh, not just comedy but music. John Fogarty, most memorably, Fantasy Records, famous for suing John Fogarty for writing songs that sounded like CCR. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Lenny and there's also issues around uh, whether or not people were being paid and properly com- uh, compensated. The uh, reason I bring up Fantasy Records today is that I think they do a both a service and a disservice to Lenny Bruce. Because Lenny Bruce was so like a jazz performer, so improvisational, so extemporaneous in his delivery, uh, he never, and he says this in every show, he says in the Carnegie Show, whole show, never did the same show twice. So what, what Fantasy Records did, and again, I would say to their clunky credit, is they would assemble the best version of a Lenny Burst bet by taking little clips and pieces from a bunch of different recordings and putting them together, right? Now, if this was to play together as a script or a transcript, you could really appreciate how great um, it was to to see the development of Lenny Burst's bets over time. Yeah. And unless you were teaching a class called Lenny Burst Studies to dig into every single version, recorded version of a particular piece and then try to assemble in your mind how Lenny had developed it would be very difficult to do. So for anyone that's interested in studying Lenny Bruce, you know, it's really, really quite crucial. And it's why I love the fantasy recordings. A piece like Comedy Comedian at the Palladium that developed over a certain amount of time, one of my favorite Lenny Bruce bits. Any little aside or little tag um, that he developed or crafted after he kind of developed the bit originally on stage is then slammed in using 1960s uh, editing techniques. So the biggest problem, obviously, is is the uh, level of the background uh, sound, mm-hmm. right? Every room is going to sound acoustically different, uh, that you're going to interrupt and, and cut the laugh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, just that the intonation of his voice, the... The, the way that he's delivering it within a sentence is never going to reconcile itself. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a clunky, edited, monstrous kind of a thing. Very unpleasant to listen to and does not represent the rather fluid and free-forming yeah. rhythm of Lenny's style. Yeah, like, but, yeah, if anything, like, listening to his material is very jazz-like. It's very, it's very yeah. natural and, and, and flowing. Exactly. Yeah. But to me, it is also terribly important to have this because it does show how incredibly clever Lenny Bruce was and how able he was. And sometimes if I hear a concert, you know, because more and more stuff is coming out, the Berkeley show came out years ago. But, you know, I would imagine over time that that people will find their box, uh, you know, an eight track recording they've made of a Lenny show that, uh, you know, will just be discovered. I'm hoping there'll be more and more Lenny Bruce material will come available over time, and then we'll, get, we'll be able to see more of these long and extended live performances. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Carnegie Hall is probably Lenny Bruce, you know, uh, just, you know, kind of right in the middle of, uh, you know, his, his, his national prominence. He's playing an established kind of venue, Carnegie Hall, he even jokes about this. And it really does represent, in a way, uh, 
a, a good quality Lenny Bruce show and gives you Lenny as he was, warts and all, for better or worse. And that's why it's a wonderful uh, recording, um, which I would say to most young comedians today and anybody exposed to Lenny for the first time, uh, it's going to come across as somewhat disappointing and somewhat confusing. You're not sure what all the fuss is about. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's like I going back. I my my experience with Lenny Bruce was very different. Like listen, after going back and listening to this, I, I came to appreciate him much more because I, in the context of how I listened to it before, it's like oh, this just doesn't age well. It doesn't doesn't feel right. But then listening to like an unedited flowing of, of the, the, the bits and how he transitions and frames everything as like, Oh, this works in this context way better than it did. Like in the, in the context of these, these heavily edited curated pieces. of Exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting that you use that uh, expression age. Well, right. Uh, because, you know, that's part of the conversation we're having right now, right? I mean, in cultural studies, right? And, and, and on the internet, which is, you know, what does that mean from an artistic standpoint? What does age well mean? Age well means, I think in the way you're using it, that at this particular juncture, which is not a fixed point in time, right? At this juncture, uh, some of the material seems, and again, this is another temporal uh, word, dated or whatever right and so there's a bunch of different ways that something doesn't age well the style of the comedy right uh, literally right it is so predictable like milton burl or whatever you know that we see the joke coming that's one way something doesn't age well it's unsophisticated in its uh in its craft we have gotten better right the other of course is that it's uh it's too topical and one of the things that's great about Google is that now we can take, you know, who was Bobby Franks? Well, he was the, you know, he was the child victim of the 10 year old, 11 year old child victim of Leopold and Loeb in 1930s, a uh, uh, pair of, of um, thrill killers, as they, they said. Then he makes this joke that uh, in the show, he alludes to it, that the, the kid was a little snot and so on and so on and so on. And uh, so Lenny Bruce Eisenhower, you know, he's going to be talking about, um, you know who the president was at the time and 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 so on and so on in this case kennedy has just been uh, recently elected um and um so there's there's that part of it is why it doesn't age well and then the other is uh, just the that the that the style that the style of the comedy is uh, doesn't age well um it's interesting i would say you know who is um who is influenced by lenny you know in today's comedy world who is actually um studied lenny listened to lenny and who can you have a conversation with about lenny bruce and i would say back in the 80s when i started in the 90s you could find a pretty large contingent of comics who were familiar with lenny from cassettes and stuff i would say that the most profoundly influenced comic uh that i know of uh that i personally knew was Mike McDonald. Mike McDonald was profoundly influenced by Lenny Bruce. Mike McDonald's laugh is is Lenny Bruce's laugh. Mike's extemporous delivery, uh, especially, uh, you know, because uh, it's a matter of public record that Mike uh, for a while was a a heroin user. I think during that period, 
uh, even more so when Mike would do uh, shows back in the day when he was uh, high. Uh, he was very, very much like Lemmy, very extemporaneous, you know. I love, one of the things, I'll be jumping all over the place like Lemmy does. Uh, one of the things I love about Carnegie Hall is, like a jazz musician, uh, he wants to find the time signature for the show, right? So right off the top, he's constantly doing a metronome, right? He's snapping his fingers after every job. That slows down as he gets into his own rhythm. And some of the rhythm is based on the audience's perception, but I've never met or reaction, right? But I've never met a comic, uh, you know, discovered a comic uh, who is less uh, worried about the audience's response than Lenny Bruce. He doesn't seem to give a shit that, uh, you know, and I mean, people appreciate it, but that, you know, it's, uh, they didn't think anyone was going to come in 61 because it was a huge snowstorm. But they ended up having a close to sellout crowd, I believe. Um, that's not a sellout uh, volume of laughter uh, that you hear in the Carnegie Hall concert. No Lenny Bruce, uh, no Lenny Bruce uh, recording is ever going to be drowned out. You're never going to miss a Lenny joke because the audience is laughing too hard. Lenny never has to stop and pause because the applause break is so long, even when he's killing. Right? He's not that kind of a not that kind of a comic. Yeah. But it is amazing, right? And then the first couple of minutes of the album is he's riffing on, uh, I'm, uh, do they even know I'm here? Yeah. You know, do they even know I'm here? Is it, and I love the, I love the uh, adjective he used, some corrupt janitor. Corrupt, <laughs> right? Like he, like he took some money, you know, you know like a communist's uh, rally or something, you know? Uh, just so, so amusing and so funny. You know, and then, you know, you see he really establishes himself uh, before he even gets into it. And then, you know, and very much in Mike McDonald style, uh, the first 10, 15 minutes of a lot of Lenny shows, a little bit about what happened on the way there. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum, right? Yeah. What he got. Mike McDonald used to do that. Mike McDonald told me once, and I, I think it's, it's so important for every comment, when you're doing a long show, is the pacing and the rhythm of a show. Mm -hmm. Right. And Carlin was good at this, too. And Billy Connolly, all the masters of, I would call, joke driven storytelling. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and that is Mike would say, when you get to the office, do you turn on your computer and sit down and start working for eight hours at full uh, potential? No, you have a coffee. Right. You go get a coffee. You chat to a couple of co-workers. First, it's about what you did the night before, how you got there, the traffic, the weather. Then very slowly, it's about the things that you're supposed to be doing that day. You start to organize the work. What, am, what are we going to expect? What's going to happen? What am I going to uh, be doing today? Right. Well, there's you know, like that great interaction that he has between the person in the balcony. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and it's like, and then he is dawning out. He's like, oh, I, can you hear me? It's like, of course you can hear me. We're yeah, yeah, yeah. You just want to be on the album. It's like, it's very natural. And it's it, very natural and funny. Yeah, it, you it, know, it, I think you're it, crowd work without being crowd work. It's a genuine conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's actually, and I love when Lenny is uh, surprised, you know, when he goes, you can hear me, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's, he's being, I don't know if Lenny's deliberately being slightly disingenuous, but he is directing and he, he's even stepped away from the mic and, and, and it's a bit louder. He's 
specifically talking to the man, that's why the man can hear him. Yeah. I actually believe because, I mean, it's hard to handicap because you're not there. And obviously the mic is going right into the board. But, I mean, it's a very clean uh, sound, right? I mean, you can hear everything on the album. I think pro probably what's happening is a lot of people uh, are having trouble a little bit with, uh, with uh, Lenny's kind of... Um, with his idiom, with his accent, you know, his, 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 his five boroughs kind of accent. Uh, also that he speaks very quickly, you know, it's got kind of that Yiddishy driven kind of fast talking kind of thing uh, that if you're not following the sequence of the rhythms or what he's talking about, it's very, it's hard to follow. Mm -hmm. It's actually, there's a, there's a, I think an almost uh, precise analogy which is that people say that Bob Dylan is incomprehensible in concert, right? Yeah. That he mumbles and you can't hear him. But I have n uh, Bob Dylan to me is one of the most articulate singers that I've ever heard. He pronounces very, uh, he uses very precise diction like Sinatra does. You can hear the T's mm. and so on when Dylan sings. Dylan is not a sloppy singer. Uh, it is simply that it's coming fast. The, you know, it's not a predictable, I love you, you love me, you know, so you're not sure what he's going to say next, which is why both Lenny as a comic and Bob Dylan as a songwriter are interesting. They're not predictable, right? And so that to me is probably the substance of why the, pro the person has problem understanding. And Lenny uh, actually addresses us later on in the record. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a very good argument for uh against scolding and cancel culture is you can't be angry at somebody for not knowing what they don't know yeah right they if somebody literally doesn't get something then there is some responsibility to explain it to somebody mm -hmm. right if you are as herbert spencer says displaying contempt prior to investigation then you have a kind of a chosen form of ignorance, right? Okay, but if you say, I don't get this they, them, non-binary kind of garbage, right? It seems uh, really confusing to me. It seems like a waste of time. And then somebody sits down and explains it to you, and you say, oh, I understand. And then someone explains to you, I don't want to hear about it. Right, this is stupid. Right, that those are two different things. Right, Pat, Pat Oswald has a bit about um, language and that being an allyship, uh, where he talks about wanting to not always being up to date on the terms. Yeah, updating himself as soon as quickly as possible, and it's like give people a chance if they genuinely want to learn, and that's kind of the same gist. Whereas Lenny's kind of talking about you know his hip idiom and his Yiddish idiom and his intellectual idiom, and he doesn't want to have to pause to explain everything. Yeah. So and his and his uh, and his Hollywood idiom. Yeah, yeah, right. Because I mean, one of the things that. Um, you know, one of the things that you we, we always have to remember about Lenny Bruce is that his uh, condemnation of uh, the entertainers, you know, as we see in uh, uh, the comic at the Palladium, you know, like the act uh, Bingo and his dog, the sound check in the afternoon. Uh, 
Bingo says, uh, what do we do when we see Hitler? Uh, dog lift slag crash, right? <laughs> that's, that's the best rehearsal for that bit. So he's, he's making fun of vaudeville, but in a way that is also full of a uh, tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, respect and uh, admiration. Because as you well know, uh, Lenny Bruce begins his career as an impressionist, right? And so one of the ways that Lenny uh, got to be an impressionist and I'm from this generation as well, is he would watch the things he loved over and over and over and over and over again. So these old movies, these old comedy skits, uh, all the things that were coming into his life, uh, you know, because he's right on the cusp of the adventure of television, uh, old school, old timey radio. And, you know, one of the things that uh, you, you see very quickly when you're, ta- when you're watching Lenny Bruce is how much he employs these kind of sketch, mm-hmm. almost second city, Techniques. Hey, you wise guy. Yes, you bum. Yes, you schmuck. You know. Ah, I see ya. You know, it's very much in that kind of style. You know, doing Edward G. Robinson and uh, you know people like uh, Jimmy Cagney, right? So he he would stop doing the impressions, but he would do those kind of idioms and those styles. The wise guy, the gangster, right? The mall, right? He's really much, very much from that style, you know. And that's what also makes him fascinating and so timeless, you know. Now, who would you say would be his comic? Because, I mean, he talks in the album about how he interacted with the earlier generation of comics and they were, like, they were praising him for not doing toilet humor. But, I mean, he, yeah, yeah. he came up um, doing the burlesque circuit and as an announcer at strip shows and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he made this transition from very blue to very sp- – very clean and then and then rejected that returning to blue material um so who who would you feel uh informed his material uh during those early years well it's interesting you say that i just want to jump in on that very quickly which is that uh this was a trajectory that happened to prior as well right yeah. prior tried to fit into the kind of white mainstream and then had that famous meltdown in uh, San Francisco, right, where he, he, he went all homophobic on the crowd, you know, because he was so uh, angry. Obviously, I don't think that the bisexual Richard Pryor uh, was homophobic, but, uh, you know, Richard uh, dated a trans woman. But, um, you know, he was just, he was kind of fed up, right? He was fed up with that culture. He was fed up with uh, um, uh, uh, slimy hypocrites like Bill Cosby. Uh, you know, condemning him, say, why well, you had to use the language. He tried to play the game and uh, it didn't work for him. And he said, fuck it. And then he, uh, you know, he became prior. And, and Lenny basically does this kind of uh, the same thing. This is the era, of course, where there was a kind of moral panic uh, around many cultural uh, performance uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, books and uh uh, more famously, uh, comic books, Mad Magazine, and so on. There was a moral panic uh, going on, and there was a moral panic as stand-up began to blossom in this uh, notion of the sick, sick comic. Um, the, uh, uh, Wayne and Schutter do a hilarious bit about how, uh, for the first time, comedy records were outselling uh, musical records. And so in one of the early uh, Martin uh, uh, Wayne and Schuster albums, they have a list of all the top-selling albums of the year. And one of them is the, the sick comedy of Marty Sick. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so Lenny is in that kind of, you know, and this is at the same time, as you probably know, you know, uh, you know he's competing against uh, Woody Woodbury, uh, whose entire oeuvre was that he was an alcoholic, mm. you know, 
uh, one of the first comics to play in a room that was named after himself, you know? And uh, then you have uh, uh, comics like um, uh, Don Adams, you know, who was horrible. Uh, Soupy Sales, who wasn't quite as horrible. Um, you know, all these kind of, uh, you know, and of course, uh, the amazing Bob Newhart and stuff, you know, yeah. uh, but, but comedy, comedy was huge. And, uh, and Lenny, Lenny was put in this category of, of sick comics, along with Mort uh, Saul, who turned into a, an, a reactionary uh, kind of um, bizarro person uh, at the end of the day, but also uh, really uh, borrowed on this kind of jazz idiom and, and style. Also, Mart's all a, uh, a, um, a textbook homophobe and, and misogynist, as well as being uh, in person a, a very disagreeable human being. But uh, joke for joke, my goodness, and if you ever want, well, we could take apart a Mart's all album because I can quote, I quote Mart's all um, so often. My favorite uh, Mart's all joke that I quote uh, quite often uh, because I think it's so important today, is Martzal describes how he was uh, invited when uh, Kennedy uh, to the inauguration. Mm-hmm. And they were hoping, of course, that he would continue his uh, uh, shitting on Nixon. And, of course, they didn't realize as a satirist, now that the Kennedys were in power, he was going to shit on that. And it was the beginning of the end. That and his obsession with the assassination was the beginning of the end of his career. Uh, but at the time, he talks about how they, they land him in Bethesda, a naval base, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he's met by this five-star uh, general, you know, who salutes him. He's got the epaulets and all the medals and stuff. And Marcel says, it's all terribly impressive if you're 11. <laughs> I, I use that joke all the time because it's such a perfect gift of that kind of military-industrial obsession. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned albums, comedy albums selling well, and in the special – uh, Lenny references Von Meter, who prior, Von Meter. To, yeah, prior to the Beatles was the highest selling or fastest selling album was his, yes. his comedy about Kennedy. Um, yes, yeah. So, so you you've met Meter? I met Von Meter, yeah. and it's quite a story. My goodness. Okay, so so as you know, poor Von Meter, right? And then um, it's uh, it's it's often misquoted. But uh, on November uh, 22nd, uh, 1963, Lenny Bruce has a show. And there's a question as to whether or not the show should go ahead and so on. And then um, it's an interesting product of how our memories work. Uh, for years, I told the Lenny Bruce uh, uh, Kennedy assassination night show joke that it was at Carnegie Hall. It wasn't until you uh, asked me to do the show that I was reminded that the Carnegie show, Hall show was in 61. Mm-hmm. And so the show that he, uh, Lenny does in uh, November 22nd, 1963, is just a club show. Uh, but people are wondering why Lenny feels that he has an obligation, obviously, to say something. It's a terrible day, uh, uh, but the show must go on and so on and so on. And so he comes out and he whistles. You know, he does that Lenny versus whistle. And he goes, man. Von Meter is screwed, right? That, that's the actual joke. Uh, some people say poor Von Meter. He may have done the joke again, like, you know, another show that week. But the first time, as, as far as I know, that Lenny Bruce references Von Meter and, Ken, and the Kennedy assassination and Stacey Whistles and says, man, man, Von Meter is screwed. And of course, it was right. And so, so Von Meter. And so what happens to Von Meter is that Von Meter... Uh, basically goes uh, from making a million 
dollars a year, two million dollars a year, uh, top selling comedy record. Um, uh, the uh, uh, I think uh, was uh, was it called the first family? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, until Von Meter returns and actually has quite uh, quite a success with a follow up album. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, 1968-1969 ish about Nixon. Mm-hmm. So Von does a Nixon album, uh, which isn't quite as good, uh, but uh, it doesn't sell. But he did a bang on uh, Kennedy impersonation, and so um, this is the, the early '60s. And then, of course, he has a little bit of a comeback in the '70s, uh, but by the mid 1970s, Von Meter is uh, pretty much finished as a uh, you know as a performing impressionist, and I think by the uh, mid 1980s, 1985, 1986, during the height of the comedy boom, um, Von is in New York State somewhere, wandering around with no shoes, uh, and he's addicted, or at least a heavily user of uh, crack. Oh no! Cocaine. Yes. So quite sad. And then, so now we cut to. Uh, I'm just trying to think now. Um, whether or not we had moved to uh, Winnipeg or not. But somewhere between uh, uh, 1990 and 1994, John Oakley, huge comedy fan, um, and uh, uh, all-night talk show host in Montreal, has moved to Toronto and has this kind of um, uh, show on one of those uh, specialty channels, a kind of talk show. And he, it's just like John's radio show, he's some of his favorite people on and so he invites me on to spritz and we talk about Lenny and do all the kind of things we always talk about. I read some of my funny poems and so on. Mm. He guessed that, the guest that night is also Von Meter. Wow. And so, and so this uh, delightful young man uh, named Richard, who was both uh, John Oakley's producer at CFRB and my producer at CFRB, uh, one of these uh, classic 1970s National Lampoon radio show kind of eager beaver kind of producer people that would do anything kind of a you know a smarter uh, Smithers with a backbone kind of a young <laughs> guy who was obsessed with comedy and would do anything for his host or whatever drives down to the United States I believe it's like Buffalo or maybe Niagara Falls New York where Von Meter is in a nursing home and is uh, beginning to uh, struggle with dementia to such a degree that he's not allowed out of the nursing home except for walks and visits to the library and so on and so on. And Richard uh, drives down there, uh, poses as one of his relatives with Vaughn's assent, right, Mm -hmm. and uh, permission, and uh, says he's like a nephew or a cousin, going to take him for a walk. (laughs) They spirit spirit Vaughn across the border (laughs) and drive him to Toronto. Where he appears on John Oakley's uh, John Oakley's show, and um, because he was on last and I was on first, uh, he's in the dressing room when we arrive, and we get to chat for about half an hour uh, about just that time, you know. And he's so uh, full of amazing stories and uh, and stuff about that time. And then uh, he goes on and does the thing, and uh, you know, I would describe it as very similar to. Um, if you ever watched that Paul Williams uh, documentary, you know, uh, here is a man, um, and then Paul, and Paul even had the more, so, you know, Paul won an Oscar Grammy, Paul, Paul Williams was a, was a renaissance man who lost everything. Uh, Von Meter 
uh, I don't think was quite in that talent uh, caliber, but he was on top of the world. And like Paul Williams, he was a man that had come to a place where he had just said how few of us ever get a chance to have that kind of a success in what we love to do. How many nights and days of happiness, you know, and, and fun, how many people did I get to meet and so on. And this was his attitude, you know, that uh, better to have, you know, loved and lost than to have never lost at all. And so he was this lovely, peaceful, uh, gentle old man, you know, who was just so kind and lovely. And, um, you know, he, you know, and he laughed, he said he laughed at the Lenny joke and he, he knew it was true. And, uh, you know, he's, he basically said, I thought, I saw, I thought of that long before Lenny did. And, you know, I felt bad because, uh, you know, everyone loved the president and everyone was in grief, but I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do now? <laughs> uh, now, um, and then, and so yeah, and I mean, maybe this is not a bad time to continue, and I don't want to do this like you know, like as a as a as a uh, you know that I'm name dropping, you know, but I you know I I happen to develop a you know a friendship with Paul Krasner, you know, who's a very close friend of Lenny's, and both he and Lenny said that there was a guy in the neighborhood when they grew up. Uh, that was even funnier than both of them. Yeah, I can't remember his name, but uh, Goldman talks about it in Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, you know. But Lenny was hilarious, Paul was hilarious, but there was this other Jewish kid that was even funnier, and he didn't go on to show us enough, you know. But uh, Krasner um, basically co-wrote um, uh, how, uh, how to Talk Dirty and Influence People. Yeah. And, uh, and if you listen to Krasner's comedy, um, you know, I believe that Paul, and he said, Paul would say this to some degree without taking any uh, credit that, you know, Paul was around for a lot of the development and the Lenny versus bet, bets and the, the conversations that Paul and Lenny had uh, while Lenny was alive. There, there's no question that they that they helped shape uh, Lenny Bruce and his material, you know, that Krasner's uh, influence is, is kind of there. Although Lenny, I think at the end of the day, was a better performer, you know, than Paul. Uh, Paul was terribly funny, but as a stand-up, I think Lenny was the superior stand-up, as, as Paul would, I'm sure, attest had he not uh, recently passed away. Um, and uh, so Paul had these lovely, beautiful stories about Lenny. But the most interesting stories I've ever been told about Lenny Bruce were actually from Tom and Dick's mothers, um, who I got to open for and also got to interview. And um, especially Dick would describe how different Lenny was from the Lenny on stage. Yeah. You know, that he was such a mensch, that he was so affable, that he was so shy. And uh, uh, Dickie Smothers, uh, one of the most uh, visually funny stories he ever tells is about uh, taking Lenny Bruce uh, water skiing. <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> so, so if you can imagine, he says, if you can imagine this, this skeletal, you know, white, you know, <laughs> dark-haired Jewish man in like shorts, right? puffy shorts that are are much wider than the diameter of his skinny legs, going around the harbor, holding on to this uh, the bar that was the strangest and most bizarre thing, with his mother's brothers and a little speedboat dragging him around. <laughs> Actually, it was uh, tying into what I was going to ask about. Um, like he, 
you know, he, he talks about his peers in the album, but he also operated as a mentor to a lot of comics. Um, you know, interestingly, like Joan Rivers and Paul Krasner as well. Um, how was his relationship with these younger generation of comics who, you know, idolized him and like, you know, like Carlin and, and all these other comedians who, who care, seem to carry his legacy forward? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I mean, Carlin's another good example. And Carlin is somebody, obviously, who who was uh, strongly influenced by, uh, by Lenny Bruce. Um, I mean, the difference between... Carlin and some of the other comics that developed out of that uh, style is that Lenny Bruce, uh, like most, Lenny Bruce is by definition much more than any of the other comics we've mentioned today, with the exception of Paul Krasner. Lenny Bruce is by definition a political satirist, Mm -hmm. right? And so Lenny Bruce in that sense is uh, not necessarily a counterculture figure in that sense, right? That uh, he is commenting on the status quo uh, without really uh, living in or offering alternative lifestyles that might be more agreeable to uh, to human um, cohabitation, you know, like, um, like Carlin in the sense that uh, Carlin was kind of, became a kind of a hippie. Mm-hmm. Right. And had Lenny Bruce lived beyond 1966, because he dies just before. Right. Lenny Bruce, if anything, is from the from the uh, uh, the jazz and beat uh, generation. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the post-war generation. Right. Um, I mean, he wasn't born post-war, but I mean, he, you know what I mean? He, he was uh, he was coming out of that 1940s. You know, Lenny Bruce's cultural influences you know, on his life and such would have been informed, uh, you know, primarily in the late 1940s and 1950s, as opposed to the 1960s, right? We're beginning with the publication of um, of On the Road, uh, Catcher in the Rye, uh, certainly in poetry, we're beginning to see the, the development, the Howell, Allen Ginsberg's Howell out in California, the Hungry Eye, we're beginning to see the the hippie generation develop and certainly people smoked uh, marijuana um but the idea of free love and all these kinds of things are are a much later um elaboration right you know the same way that ken kesey jumps on the merry prankster's bus you know but it's still you know from that kind of a kind of a generation Mm -hmm. carlin as you know begins in a comedy team yes right with um with uh, not uh, with uh, Jack Burns, yes. who ends up going, who ends up joining Avery Schreiber for Burns and Schreiber. So I think it was Burns and Carlin, or um, yeah, I, they did the Playboy Club. I listened to that. Album yeah, yeah. Ago and it was is is so different. For, like I, it's completely different. Wino Radio era. Yeah, That's yeah. I came to know Carlin, but like hearing this, it's like, oh, this is almost like a like a like Burns and Allen kind of. Like, yeah, no, yeah. or Burns and Schreiber, yeah. right? Burns Burns ended up going on and doing the same kind of thing. Not that Burns and Schreiber weren't funny because they were, um, but yeah. So he starts in a comedy team, and then if you look at the early, uh, you know, pre-bearded uh, Carlin. Uh, performances 
uh, W-W-I-N-O, uh, like, he's very much like so early Lenin, right? He's making fun of the, of the button-down world, the radio announcer, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's really inured more in, in laughing, right, than it is in uh, fire sign radio or national anthem radio, right? We're at the cusp. We're at the cusp. You know, none of these guys came out fully born, right? They really were uh, straddling two worlds, mm -hmm. and eventually they would cross over into another world, which is what I resort back to, which is what would happen to Lenny after 1966? What would have happened if he hadn't, as Newsweek said, died of an overdose of police, right? What would have happened to Lenny Bruce? Uh, you know, would he have become uh, like Mort, a, uh, a grumpy uh, reactionary? You know, or John Osborne, the British playwright, you know, look back in anger, became this also this conservative reactionary. Um, you know, I don't know what would have happened to Lenny. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, but, you know, he straddles this. You know, he gets out in time. And then we develop this kind of comedy that really does uh, become counterculture. Um, a Cheech and Chong, right? Uh, the hippy dippy weatherman and stuff, and it really becomes inured in counterculture, marijuana culture, right? And it's basically uh, don't trust anyone over thirty, right? Screw the man, right? Yeah. Drop in, drop out, you know, take acid, all this kind of stuff, right? It's a uh, um, it's an it's an anecdote to. Uh, the culture is escapism in a sense, political escapism, right? Because it's yeah. not, it's not ever going to actually transform anything meaningful. Um, and then of course, by the 1980s, a lot of them have moved into uh, the tech world, you know, people like Wozniak and, and jobs and, and, and all these kind of culture, counterculture people are now uh, getting into um, uh, show business and kind of a, uh, in the bureaucratic and 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 money making way, um, and uh, we get into this kind of yuppie uh, kind of era, you know. And then the second kind of wave and comedy boom comes along, which I come out of, which is the sort of 1980s, right? You know, starting in about 1983, and then you just have this explosion of comics, mm -hmm. and uh, this is where we see the Lenny Bruce influence come back, but without the material. And I'm not, which is not saying that I don't think the comics had material. It's just they chose, for the most part, to observe things in society that were more pedestrian. Like, why is the uh, pharmacist the only uh, medical professional who uh, stands three feet higher than everybody else? Right? Yeah. Which is a, you know, which is one of my favorite um, Jerry Seinfeld observations. Right? But we have Seinfeld. And, uh, and, and Riser and uh, Rich Jenny, you know, Jay Lano, you know, uh, all the wisecrackers, you know, as I call them, kind of come out. And uh, Rich Scheidner, um, great, great comics, you know, and I got to work with them all. And then slowly during that time, we begin to see comics come up that really are a bit more in the Lenny Bruce uh, kind of vein of that era, you know, uh, Kinison, Chappelle, you know, people like that. Yeah. Uh, Kinnison, you know, and Kinison, very much in the Lenny vein, as as far as I could uh, I can suggest. 
Um, so I went on tour with um, my comedy team partner and Sam Kennison. Oh, wow. So, and uh, that was, uh, the, you know, that was something that we barely survived, you know. That was a tremendous intake of uh, hilarious showbiz anecdotes, right? Interesting venues, you know, playing O'Toole's Roadhouse with Sam Kennison, you know, where there's no stage, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, visiting Sam Kinison's brother, who's still a kind of an evangelical preacher who fires his gun into the air for Jesus. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, just what an and, and Kinison was somebody who was a, a student of comedy, you know, as a former evangelical preacher who realized that he wanted to preach, you know, as Jerry Lee Lewis would say, wanted to preach for the devil instead of the Lord, you know. And did, I think, like Jerry Lee Lewis to you know, to the end, a tiny part of him actually did believe that there was some slim chance that he may indeed go to hell, you know, even though he didn't believe in it. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that was, uh, that to me was the beginning of the return uh, to this type of uh, comedy styling. And now we see a lot of comics that are kind of cut in the Lenny Burst vein. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Chappelle being one, uh, and then, you know, uh, to a lesser degree, I'm not insulting them as comics, but to a lesser degree, uh, really in terms of what, what they're talking about, not not their quality of talent or anything like that. Bill Burr and Jim Norton and and comics like that. Uh, the Australian uh, Jeffries, yeah. right? Yeah. Very much driven by point of view. Um, here's what I'm saying. Uh, you know, even CK uh, to some degree. Uh, I would put CK in the different category because CK... Uh, approach that one of the things I, I would say that what what's uh, that CK did develop that was somewhat original, although other people did it as well, was this idea of um, rather than saying, you know, who are these ad wizards that came up with this, right? Who are these numbskulls? I could do a better job. Uh, CK's was, if I was in charge, it would be even worse, right? You know, yeah. uh, that's that's the kind of approach he had, right? Who are we? Who are we? I'm just an idiot. I'm just a slob. I have no idea what I'm doing. Why are you even listening to me? You know, this kind of idea. Um, and then we have this struggle now between, uh, you know, public and private behavior. And uh, and also, um, I would say this new, new thing of punching up and punching down, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, Lenny Bruce doesn't always pass the punching up, punching down test, of course. But he's pretty good. His, yeah, I mean, his, his, his punching average is pretty good. Yeah, like listening to this out the album, like that was a problem with me early on. Is like it's without the larger context, and it, it it was it was hard to contextualize it. But then learning that larger context, and it's like no, his punches were on the average aimed the right way, and if they weren't, it was more like we said earlier. Like uh, he just didn't know yet. It wasn't a malicious yeah, yeah. like, oh, he's got to learn, and then he adapts to that. Lenny Bruce seemed to be a mensch. You know, I mean, maybe he didn't treat his, uh, you know, the, the, the people in his life uh, that were close to him uh, well all the time, you know, uh, as, a, as, as a, like any, you know, I'm a recovering uh, uh, alcoholic myself, you know, uh, you know, people who are drug addicts are, are, are liars and don't treat the people that uh, they love very well. And so obviously that dynamic, but, um, you know, anybody that I've talked to knew that knew Lenny Bruce said, they, they, you know, 
he was a mensch uh, with a heart of gold, you know, who really did care about people and, and, and in no way uh, wanted to offend anybody but those who were oppressing yeah. uh, other people. You know, uh, his his take on race uh, is obviously very different, is very much of his time. And I don't think that we have the uh, right uh, to criticize or, or, or condemn it. He, he certainly had the approval uh, uh, for the most part of, of, of most of the African-American people of prominence uh, in his in his day. And so that in many cases are good enough for me, you know. But he, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting because Lenny was so profoundly intelligent. So when he says Bobby Franks, who cares? He was just this naughty little kid. Uh, he's really taking the position of Leopold and Loeb. You know, in a sense, right? And so, one of the things about defending an intelligent comic is that you can use their intelligence to give them the benefit of the doubt in many cases. My fundamental issue with Dave Chappelle, other than that he punches down, uh, is I am not sure that the way that he thinks about things uh, and the ideas he puts forward in a kind of an evangelical fashion where he says, you know, this is what's wrong with this, right? He is, he's evangelical in that sense, right? He's one of these first-person comics. You know, Burr is the same, you know, and they've often they'll retreat, you know, especially, guys, they'll go, don't listen to me, right? You know, here's what you should do. Don't listen to me. Here's what you should say. Don't listen. I'm just an idiot. Right here, do it this way, right? Um, is that I don't think at the end of the day that Chappelle is well-read enough or really takes in the whole view of the world. You know, as Wittgenstein says, the world is a collection of facts and an understanding of the world is to have all the facts. I'm not sure that Chappelle has all the facts and that's fine. If you're gonna play the devil's advocate, if you're gonna play the, uh, the wise fool, you know, but in a sense, don't talk about trans people if you're ideas and viewpoints are not fully formed. If you want to fully form them and then come at, come at it, then go at it, right? But to just kind of be on the surface and to actually make fundamental mistakes and logic mistakes, you know? I'm not here to unpack sticks and stones, but he changes the meaning of the N-word in that thing that everybody applauds, yeah. where she says, you know, you can't use the F-word because you're not an F, and he says, I'm not the N-word either, right? The way that he says the N-word and the way that he's suggesting that she thinks that he is the N-word are two different definitions of the N-word, right? And so he moves the goalposts intellectually. And fundamentally, I think, for the purpose not of being a poor debater, but for the purpose of making the best joke possible, yeah. Dave Chappelle makes that choice. Yeah. And as a comedian, that's the choice that he should make, right? I am just saying that my preference and all discussions of comedy really ultimately get down to taste preference. My taste preference is if you're going to take an evangelical approach, then you drywall over any holes you have in your argument. So at the very least, I'm not saying they're uh, condemning your argument uh, at the same time that I'm trying to laugh. And I'm not going to laugh. I am not going to laugh categorically if I think that you're using disingenuous logic to make the joke unless you're doing it just from you're being willfully stupid 
to make a to make a point, right? Which is a perfectly yeah. okay comedy technique. Yeah. But otherwise, I think that you want to have your cake and eat it too. Well, with with Chappelle, I uh, and the, this triptych of specials that he's kind of done, it just feels like there's no progress from the first one to the third one in his point of view. Like he's yeah. maintaining the same surface, like you said, surface level understanding, and and to the fact that he changed in like the second one in equanimity he literally changed the context of the core element because he's saying like he got this letter and it was from who he yeah, yeah. the trans person and it wasn't it was a a, a trans ally who identified yeah. as that and he's like completely framing it so it makes it makes a better joke but you can't be a truth teller and no. a joke teller at the same time you have to choose your your hill and, and then in the q a of the show if you watch Sin Six and Thongs, he does the same thing yeah. with the trans woman he meets at the bar. And then he shows a picture of her at the end of the special. Did you watch that? I had not yet. No, no. Yeah. So, I mean, um, we're kind of off topic, but basically that's a, he plays the some of my best friends card. Yeah. Right. Which is something he's in his career made made so much so much meat from this for the comedy yeah. sandwich when white people do that with, with yeah, yeah, color yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. such a hypocrisy and it's and i think that's the key difference like bruce never lifts himself up he lifts society no. up with his comedy yeah. Chappelle is self-aggrandizing with his material and that's I think, yeah. where the difference in their voices come from where they're working in the same mode but completely different impact on me as a, as a, a listener or viewer I mean, the first the first two minutes of uh, comedy at Carnegie Hall is um, is basically an unpacking of that. The first thing Lenny Bruce does, and I when I reviewed the album, I couldn't remember everything about the album, so I was curious to see if I was right. And so when Don Feldman uh, makes that pretentious introduction, the right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it reminds me of fucking when uh, Bernstein throws Glenn Gould under the bus. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if that was a Carnegie Hall as well, saying this, that the tempo in which he plays the Beethoven uh, Emperor uh, piece uh, is not to his liking. Um, uh, it's the same kind of thing, except in the opposite, Feldman wants to uh, mansplain to the audience uh, who Lenny Bruce is. And uh, uh, so I was, I was much pleased that my memory served me. That Lenny Bruce shits all over it, right? <laughs> I mean, he comes out and he and he and he makes fun of it right away, yeah. and then he basically says, you know, he he Lenny speaks to the crux of what's going on today, and basically says, you should listen to me, right? You should listen to me is what Feldman is saying, right? I'm important. You should listen to me, and so he does. He unpacks that whole thing. He unpacks the uh, apology off the top because it is an apology in in the in, in the uh, in the argument sense in the in the traditional sense of argument uh, he's making an apology uh, for you know an advocacy for Lenny Bruce's style of comedy right and then Lenny just he shits all over it man. <laughs> you, know, you believe or you want to believe you dig my you dig my show uh, or you don't dig my show and then he actually uh, and and I think this is quite humane is is he makes uh, a great effort uh, to um, uh, to explain why uh, you shouldn't shit on somebody for not having the context and so on. Yeah. And this is another important aspect of Lenny Bruce uh, as, a, as, a, as an artist drawing outside of the lines, uh, who was also, uh, in a sense, apolitical in some ways, is he has the same obsession 
that Kubrick has, which is until the last minute when he was so um, struggling so much with his addiction and so overwhelmed and stressed out by his um, uh, trials and tribulations that in that concert film, uh, which is still to me quite funny, you know, where he reads a lot of transcripts from the trial and closes with the Auschwitz uh, poem. Uh, it's still worth seeing to me. Uh, it's still Lenny Bruce, and he's still quite funny. I laugh at that uh, concert when I watch it every time. I still think it's Lenny. It's quite funny. It's great to see him. You know, ha, boom, ah, doom, doom, boom, boom, boom. He opens the door and yells into the alley. It's got the Thank You, Mass Man cartoon. Yes. Which I totally love, right? Thank you, Mad Man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's, so it's a great, it's a great uh, artifact. Um, but, uh, yeah, this idea of uh, kind of um, being generous with the audience, and like Kubrick, actually being almost to the end extremely interested in being, uh, transmitting your ideas. Uh, and being commercially successful for the purpose and measuring your ability to transmit your ideas through commercial success. Neither of them basically flipped the bird and said, if two people, you know, it's like an old joke. Um, I can't remember who came up with it. Uh, you know, as, as I always say, if I, can make, if I can make just one person laugh, I'm not a very good comedian, right? Yeah. So Lenny Bruce was extremely interested in his audience enjoying the experience they had paying money. You know, he was not the cliche of a performance artist. He was like Kubrick. Kubrick was heartbroken when Barry Lyndon was a failure uh, because he wanted to make movies that people saw and were shown on television. You know, that's why he filmed his films with the aspect ratio that would match uh, television screen and so on. Lenny was very much the same. Lenny Bruce made great effort throughout his entire career to make sure everyone in the audience had the best chance possible of enjoying his ideas and his performance and his stuff. He put on a show. To me, Lenny Bruce put on a show till the day he died. Now, you know? there have been a few portrayals of Lenny Bruce in the, the media, like Lenny and, and, and Mrs. Basil. Uh, what do you think of these, these different ways that um, people have brought the myth of Lenny Bruce to other media? All right. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with Bob Fosse's Lenny. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Bob Fosse to me made one of the finest films uh, in American cinema, which is uh, the, the film version of Cabaret. He also made the most uh, pretentious, fascinating, and magnificent motion picture somebody has made about themselves, which is all that jazz, which to me is also a masterpiece. Um, he did, for very good reasons, decide in 1974 uh, to make a film about Lenny Bruce, which he shot in glorious black and white and cast, and, you know, for very good reason, uh, Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I can say about the performance is that um, there are two performances, actually three, if I want to be a, a kind of bitchy about it. There are two performances that demonstrate uh, without any argument that uh, Dustin Hoffman is incapable of being funny on film. One is Lenny, and the other is um, when he uh, in Dick Tracy. Yeah. When every other actor, including Pacino, uh, manages to be hilarious playing these kind of comic book characters, and Dustin Hoffman is mumbles, can't buy a joke. Uh, the, the third, and I have a fondness for the film, of course, is Ishtar. 
Mm. And then fourth, if I want to be slightly uh, political and cranky, is Tutsi. Okay. I actually think he's pretty terrible in Tutsi as both a woman and a com- and, and, and a comedic actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Dustin uh, clearly as a kind of method actor, and there's the famous Lawrence Olivier story, you know, about him staying up all night. And uh, as a method actor, has clearly studied Lady Birds, mm-hmm. right? It's an incredible impersonation of Lady Birds, right? Uh, he can't buy a laugh. If you watch, he does the material by rote, word for word, for word, for word, for word, but he, he doesn't understand what the jokes are. Yeah, it's just, uh, I, I watched it leading up to uh, talking about the album, and it's like, I just, uh, I couldn't buy his performance. It just didn't feel, if he was saying the words, but there was no spirit behind it. And, but I have seen, I have seen clips on film, and I can't remember where I retrieved them from, of Cliff Gorman doing the play, which is what the film is based on, and Gorman with Greg, right? So the play that the film is based on uh, actually um, is quite good, and Cliff Gorman was great as Lanny, because uh, Cliff Gorman understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, poor Dustin just doesn't, um, just doesn't get it, you know, and so... That's the biggest problem. Uh, it reminds me that I wouldn't mind see, seeing it again. It's 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 not a very long film, and I mean Fosse's uh, Fosse's uh, mastery as a director is so good that it might be worth studying and watching. So it reminds me, I'm going to watch it now. Watch the Lindbergh's performance film right after. But uh, yeah, so that's not a good record. Only as someone obsessed with Lanny should watch, should ever watch the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't really do much to rehabilitate Lanny's career, nor did it do much for uh, Dustin Hoffman's career either. It was a box office and artistic failure. Uh, as far as the representation of uh, Lanny Bruce in, in uh, Maisel, um, I haven't seen the show. Uh, um, it, it's, it's, it's as an impersonation goes. It seems to very much capture that mensch aspect of it, of yeah. him as a human, uh, that mentor and genuinely caring individual. Um, and the, like, there's recreations of his bits in the show where it's it's definitely method, but in the right way kind of thing where it's like mimicking the cadence and the delivery and the style to the point where you get a Lenny Bruce performance without it being Lenny Bruce, which is interesting to me. Like you you can watch them side by side. The performance is like the exact same performance and the spirit, which Hoffman loses is, is there in those moments when, when he's performing these bits in, in, in the show. So it's definitely worth checking out if you, if you get an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll check it out. There was, I think I was going to tune into it. And then somebody, a prominent uh, Jewish uh, female writer, a longstanding New Yorker writer, uh, took a takedown of it as somebody who was around in that time, just how it plays on a lot of uh, tropes, both about comedy. And there have been very few films, in my view, that have really dug into the stand-up world and, and, and elucidated it in a way that is uh, correct. I haven't seen the one with Mark Maron and stuff in the 70s. There's one called, uh, there's one about a guy who lives on people's couches that's supposed to be good. Uh, uh, yeah, 
crashing. That's Pete, it's Pete, oh. Pete Holmes is basically Pete Holmes is show is supposed to be good. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't mind checking that out. I wouldn't mind. It, 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 Mrs. Maisel is definitely a myth. It's 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 like a, the myth of the com the sixties comic because it's, and it's, yeah, she's, yeah. she's clearly drawing from like the like she wore the dress Joan Rivers wore when she made her, yeah, yeah. her debut on television at one point. It's it's all it's taking it's a love letter to a period of comedy that's not necessarily accurate but it's well-intentioned so it's uh, that's her oh my god yeah my god joan rivers you know and uh i mean if that's what had happened to lanny you know not to be cruel about i'm not talking about her surgeries and stuff but just uh you know i mean that film that a piece of work that that marvelous documentary about joan rivers just reminds you of what a gutsy you know yeah, hard working dedicated hard working and 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 physically appealing and just i mean everything about her doing abortion jokes on the tonight show just i mean what a marvelous marvelous uh uh comic and and it's even so so appealing and her not getting it you know so inured and just trying to go for the joke you know that her poor young staff is like joan you can't say that about <laughs> Michelle Obama, she's like, why not? There's <laughs> something really appealing about it, you know? Yeah. Now, um, just to wrap up, are there any last thoughts on this album or Lenny Bruce in general that you'd like to share with people? You know, he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't write one liner. So unlike Mort Saul, you know, I mean, Mort Saul has so many, you know, there's that. They tried to they tried to do this thing because Lincoln was a Quaker, or um, not like uh, Nixon was a Quaker from modest beginnings. So they, when they were trying to make him more appealing, they had this thing where they were trying to basically say he was born in a log cabin, like uh, like uh, like uh, Lincoln, you know. And uh, and one of Nixon's uh, flackies, like like Holderman, says uh, he misunderstood. He wasn't born in a in a log cabin. He was born in a manger, right? <laughs> Which is a great one. Uh, I mean, Martel, uh, Martel's joke about uh, you know later, you know, in the in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, you can say what you want about uh, Eisner's Michael Eisner's time at Disney, but he made the monorails run on time. <laughs> it's a great joke. Yeah. Um, you know that they uh, working with a comic. You know, one of these hipsters comics. Uh, uh, you know, he wouldn't uh, he he wouldn't perform that night because it was Dave Brubeck's birthday. <laughs> You know, uh, playing in a small town and saying, um, you know, where's the cool places to go uh, after the show? And they took me to a place where you could fish illegally. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so Lenny didn't didn't have those, you know, but he did have, you know, a few, be a man, sell out. That was one I always remember, uh, Lenny, uh, you know, uh, the... um, uh, the 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 setup to the comic at the Palladium when uh, when the Sophie Tucker uh, is, is sings all the all the songs the heartbreaking songs from the war and then this last song is is for all the boys that went to war and never came back you know where are the boys gone <laughs> the boys are gone and then the MC comes out all right ladies and gentlemen uh dean of political satire and mimicry and then he's got to come out to this thing and people are crying in the audience holding each other and he's got to do oh it's just so it's so 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 funny you know but uh i just yeah i i i would say that um i mean 
I teach at the university, right? So we, uh, we teach a lot of writers, you know, and so I teach uh, Gertrude Stein, for example. And Gertrude Stein is somebody who I would say is influential in some ways in the same way that Lenny Bruce is, right? That she discovered, she was a discoverer. She discovered so many things and brought them forward. And maybe, you know, at the end of the day to, to expose yourself to, to one aspect of, 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 of her in its entirety, um, becomes a little bit of an archaeological expedition at this time that you can't really maybe, for the most part, especially when you're jumping in, enjoy Lenny Bruce uh, as you might enjoy an old George Carlin record, or you might not get all the references, but you understand and appreciate why this was revered in its time. But also remember that as you listen to Lenny today, you're like 80% of even people that attended the shows. Right, in that you don't get all of it. All I would say is, and I say this because I'm about to teach, I teach a James Joyce Ulysses class on Tuesday, and I'm about to do that again, is like like Ulysses, Lenny Bruce is worth the investment. If you invest and you spend the time, Google references you don't understand, listen to his entire work, uh, allow it to absorb, you know, read about him, study him. At the end of the day, your investment in learning about Lenny Bruce as a comic will be well worth the effort. And he will teach you things about the craft. And in that way, Lenny Bruce will never get stale and will never get old and will never be not worthwhile or one of the most important figures uh, who ever um, spent time um, in our in our industry and craft. You know, it is really, really, really worth that. Um, I don't know that this Carnegie Hall album is maybe the best place to jump in. What I would say is that post-transition, I have really stopped doing that kind of thing that really does, I don't like to do gender cliches, but it's, it's kind of a dude thing, which is when somebody comes to you with a desire to learn about somebody that you basically say, okay, here's what you do. You start with Carnegie Hall. You listen to half of that, okay? Then you listen to this piece called How to Impress Your Color Friends at Parties, okay? Then you go back to the second track, right? You know, do it the way you want to do it. You want to listen to the Carnegie Hall album first? You want to watch the concert film first? You want to watch the Bob Fosse movie? I don't give a fuck. Just spend time um, doing it, okay? I'll contradict myself. A good place to start, The you know, it's not all factually uh, accurate, uh, but uh, he was around and he was a friend. Goldman's book, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce is not a bad place to start. The other, the the other is the one with the CD on the back. I believe it's called Lenny Bruce on Trial. If you give me one second, I'll pull it from the shelf. That is a tome. <laughs> this is called. I don't know how to work. Computers. Can you see any of that? Yeah. Okay, so, so it's called, just a sec here. Where are you? Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. So it's called The Trials of Lenny Bruce, and it is by Ronald Collins and David Scover. And uh, it's a very, very, very good book. And it also has in the back, <clears throat> or in the front, a... Uh, Oh, a 75 minute uh, CD. <clears throat> and um, 
It, uh, it's a well-written uh, book. It has some new information that's not in the Goldman book. And um, just a second here, I'll tell you what's on the CD. Um, CD track list, just uh, a second here. So it's got uh, the Steve Allen show performance, you know, where he's doing the impressions and stuff, which is great. Um, then he's got the, it's got all the famous bits. Thank you, La, Mass Man, Las Vegas tits and ass. Uh, then it's got um, Paul Krasner talking about him, uh, George Carlin, Hugh Hefner, Margaret Show uh, talking about Lenny Bruce. Uh, it's got uh, some of the stuff from the um, from the trial, uh, a lot of stuff from um, uh, yeah. It's just yeah. It's it's just a lovely um, compendium, um, kind of a university course. Nicely written, very much uh, in the in the style. Awesome. Well, I'll have to check that out. Thanks very much. Now, if people wanted to see your work or, or, or see you perform, where could they find you? Well, I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and uh, I, am, uh, I am doing a lot of kind of uh, social justice stuff right now. And so I'm doing a lot of like fundraisers and these kind of things. Uh, I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the uh, process pitching a show to a production company uh, that involves me performing stand-up with some other comics and so I'm hoping that may come to fruition. Uh, I'm interested in developing also some kind of a uh, live performance kind of a CD you know so that I can get some of the sweet sweet um, serious money. Yes. Um, but as you probably know I left my uh, gig at the uh, comedy festival after 18 years and so I'll never leave comedy, but I've just been focusing on a few other things right now, but I'm hoping to get back into it because I think it's a good way to express your ideas and, uh, and develop them. But in the time being, you can follow me on, see, I'm, I'm a frequent guest on CBC, uh, CBC's The Debaters, and they're all available uh, on online. So, so check me out if you wish. I'm not, I'm not as funny as any of the comics I've mentioned today. <laughs> I'm sure you, you hold your own very well. Another, you know, another comic that I uh, who left us too soon that I thought was in the line of the vibe was Patrice O'Neill. Yes, yeah. Patrice O'Neill was a terrific comic on the mansion, a very kind human being, and I was very blessed to spend a couple of hours speaking to him uh, just for laughs. And I invited him to the Winnipeg Comedy Festival. And very sadly, he uh, he uh, died before he had a chance to come. Oh. As is somebody who I knew um, a, a bit better, and also was a big fan of, who was uh, Mitch Hedberg. Oh yes, yeah, brilliant, brilliant performer. I love, I love rice. Rice is great if you want two thousand or something. <laughs> he just packs so much funny in such condensed, perfect one-liners. There was a very, there was a, there was a Hedberg joke that was very much in the Lady Bird song where he said, um, "I, uh, I, uh, I was in, I was in the movie uh, Almost uh, Famous." And I smoked dope. I smoked fake dope with uh, Peter Frampton. <laughs> I did that once, as opposed to smoking real dope with guys that look like Peter Frampton. <laughs> I did that many times. 
<laughs> I'm not in a relationship, but I live with a woman who will be very disappointed to hear me say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. I could do this all day. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again for, for taking the time to chat with us and uh, have a great day. Will you call me again and we can talk about Mortsol? Sounds good. Sounds good. We will add Mortsol to the list and uh, we'll, we'll we'll have a have a chat. You know what we could do? We could do Mort we could do that arrow. We could do Mortsol and the Smothers Brothers and I can regale you with the uh, three and a half hours I spent uh, getting uh, wasted with Tommy uh, Smothers. It's, it was a delight to talk to you and I could do this. As I say to my students when I teach every class, I would do this anyway. I would just be sitting here in the kitchen doing this with my dog. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you. And I will be back in touch again. We'll t- talk about more Saul and this one, brothers. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, remember that one? Oh, yes. I walked out in Laredo one day. I can see by your outfit that you are a cowboy. I see by your outfit you are a cowboy too. We see by our outfits that we are both cowboys. If you get an outfit, you can be a cowboy too. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.